We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with and hears their stories. Welcome to Chasing Hardware. I am your host, Rich Lamello. My guest today is in the Hockey Hall of Fame. He spent his entire career with the New York Islanders, including eight of them as captain. Under his leadership, they won four Stanley Cups, and he also won three Norris trophies as the league's best defenseman. When he retired, he had more goals and points than any blue liner ever. And contrary to what Rangers fans might think, he didn't suck. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> Mr. Dennis Potvan. Dennis, welcome to Chasing Hardware. Thank you very much, Rich. I appreciate the intro. Oh, and it's uh, obviously it's my pleasure to have you on the show. Um, as, as you know, as you know, what we do is we just kind of discuss like, you know, your childhood and growing up and then obviously the path to, to Long Island and uh, and, you know, the stellar career you had there. Um, you are. You're, it's kind of an interesting story. So you're basically born and, and raised right in and around Ottawa, but right on the Ottawa River is whole Quebec, and that's where you're born. But then you're raised across the river uh, on the Ontario side. Tell me a little bit about, you know, kind of growing up and your household and all of that. Well, you know, it's been, it's been uh, mentioned several times. You know, people say, well, are you born in Hull, Quebec? Or, you know, are you a Quebecois? Or are you Ontario, Franco, Ontarian? So I was born in Quebec at the Quebec hospital, but my dad thought that it was going to be less expensive to have the birth at the Quebec hospital at the time. But then I immediately came to Vanier, which used to be called Eastview. And that's a small 125, 130,000 community that is basically French Canadian within the city limits of Ottawa. So I was there until I about three or four years old. And all of this is being told to me by my mom and dad. And then we settled in Overbrook, which is the eastern part of Ottawa. And that's where really everything started in terms of, you know, going to school and playing hockey and all of that. So uh, that's kind of the story about how it all began. So it's fascinating, like, you know, one facet, uh, you know, for, for the listener who's not necessarily a huge hockey fan, it, you know, one of the facets of hockey is, uh, especially in Canada, a lot of the, you know, a lot of these kids go away at like age 15 to the juniors, but you have to bill it, you're living in somebody else's house or a boarding house. But in your case, with the 67s, 
you're playing for the hometown team. So even though you're very young, you're like 13 when you join the 67s, which is crazy, uh, at least you're doing it in your town. Did you, were you able to live in your house or did you have to go, you know, bill it? No, I mean, that was one of the great things that I mentioned. I was very fortunate because, you know, on several fronts, uh, I don't think that I would have been invited to play junior hockey, you know, at that age had my brother, Jean, not been a member of the Ottawa 67s. So that helped a lot. And, you know, the same thing happened when I turned pro. You know, Patsy, my brother, uh, you know, was already a seasoned veteran in the NHL and had been acquired by the Islanders. So my dad basically took a basement and we had uh, his basement and we had our own entrance. So we could go in and out of our bedrooms uh, through the basement. And that's where basically my brother and I heard the same room. And, uh, you know, we played floor hockey in the basement. And, you know, just like all kids in Canada, and, and I'm sure now in the U.S., you know, you do it with those little sticks and whatnot. But I had, I had competition. I had a brother who was three and a half years older than me. And at that time, maybe a little bit bigger. But uh, it was a great upbringing because my dad, who himself had belonged to the Detroit Red Wings organization, back in the late 30s, um, had played the major junior hockey uh, and against teams like the Verdun Maple Leafs. And if people want to go back, they'll find that a guy like Maurice Rocket Richard was playing for the Verdun Maple Leafs, and my dad played against him. But then dad had an injury, and war came along, and, you know, the story goes on. But he was never able to make it to the big team in Detroit. Um, and so but he was always a wonderful mentor and made it possible by building an outdoor rink outside, right outside the back door. I mean, it was so close to the back door that when lunchtime came along, we never took any skates up. We just sat on the porch and mom handed a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And that was, we went back out to play. So he was a Canadian upbringing, no doubt about it. I, I, it's, that's fascinating. I, I read that, um that you know obviously you and and john and you had another brother also right another older brother yes uh bob uh, we call call him bobble no <clears throat> and the reason uh bobble no k-n-o-w he was the academic in the family he went to military college became a uh, major in the canadian air force flew planes and uh, whenever there was any question around the dinner table uh, about, you know, who is that guy in politics or who is that businessman? We always turn to Bob because Bob will know. <laughs> so, Bob is still with us. He's, uh, what is he, 78? He's like 90 or eight, nine years older than I am. And I'm going to be spending time with him again. I see him every summer when I go back to Ottawa. Oh, that's great. I, I read that um, you would, uh, you know, as, as many of these stories are, you know, there's kind of a basket with hand-me-down shin guards and skates and stuff and your skates you would put I'm fascinated by this you would put peppers in your skates or pepper in your skates to keep your feet warm tell me about that you know what I, I had the thick socks uh, and uh, the skates I wore already toe taped and white because the toe was damaged already so while well, my brother Bob had worn them then Jean had worn them and then they moved on to me so they were not exactly the best fitting skates. But, you know, when we played outside for so many hours, I don't know if this is scientifically true or not, 
but the story certainly is. We would put, you know, pepper in the bottom of the skates and in the socks. And, you know, there's a little burning that came along with it when your feet started to perspire. And, and I guess it worked because it seemed like we, we did it over and over again. But we <laughs> a lot. I mean, listen, my birthday is at the end of October. And I've said this many times, you know, by the end of October, early November, we were already skating at an outdoor rink. And my neighborhood uh, fathers got together and made it possible every year. That's great. Uh, and so and so you get with your with your older brother, Jean, playing for the 67s, uh, you get signed to them. So you're like we said, you're 13 years old, which is just crazy. What was it like being in the locker room with a but now I know you've probably played, you know, uh, with the older boys, you know, a lot because of your brother. But now you're playing in the juniors with the older boys. Now it's business. Um, what was that like? Was it tough to get accepted? Uh, did your brother have your back? You know, I'm curious about that dynamic. But this was the real deal. So uh, you ask a very good question, and there's a storyline to it. Yes, my brother took care of me, uh, but he had to. <clears throat> so when the call came that I joined my brother to go play my first game with the Ottawa 67s, uh, my brother Jean telling me the story, and he's told it many times, dad cornered him. My dad's name was Adama, and cornered him and said, look, he said, I've already talked to R. Howard Darwin, the owner of the Ottawa 67s, and coach Bill Long. Denis will not be allowed on the ice unless you're on the ice with him. And the reason for that is, if anybody touches Denis, you're going to kick his ass. So my brother was a protector until I finally told him, I think a year later, I said, look, <clears throat> it's getting a little embarrassing here, you know, so let me fight my own fights. And I became a full-fledged junior hockey player, I think, getting in my first fights. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, and speaking of your first fights, I was looking at your stats from junior. So you played with Ottawa for five years, uh, right? Hockey, yeah. Well, we had only had a 20-year-old draft. Right. So why there were no 18-year-olds going to the NHL like today. So that's why I had to play the full five years. Okay. And so I looked at your stats and it's amazing. So, you know, even then you're a very offensive defenseman, you average over a point a game, but in your last three years, you averaged four penalty minutes a game, which is a, I mean, a staggeringly high number, well below, or, I'm sorry, well above your average during your NHL career. Was that, did you just kind of feel like you had to, you know, play that game to get noticed? I, you know, I was feeling, it was feeling like I might've been a target, you know, but, and I wasn't very happy. We, we didn't really have, you know, the tough guys on our team. Um, and so junior hockey was pretty rankous, you know, uh, it was pretty wild. And, you know, when uh, the opportunity came, I didn't really have a lot of patience. I had a short temper, which I had to work on later on. <clears throat> but uh, a lot of those, uh, a lot of those were obviously fighting majors and some were expulsions and whatnot. But you know, it was something that I had to work on. I, I you know, I had a great coach in uh, Leo Boyvin my last year uh, junior. And Leo, of course, great defenseman of the Boston and other uh, teams, you know, had made it pretty clear. He said, look, you know, if you're going to you're going to play in the bigs. You, you can't spend time in the penalty box. And, you know, you have other things that you could do to help the team, obviously. So in any event, the fortunate part about it is that I was still able to put up a lot of points, scoring goals and assists. And I think my last year is 
you know, I shattered pretty much every junior record by a defenseman in terms of the goals and points. So I finally got myself tamed down a little bit. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and, and before we leave your, your youth career, I'm, I'm also curious, I, I believe you were a Canadians fan growing up and oh, yeah. Jean Bellevue was your, your guy. Um, were, were there any, but he obviously is a centerman. Um, and were there any defensemen who you kind of modeled your game on or? Yes. Uh, you know, I think the Jean Bellevue was, Probably at a young age, I always thought being the captain of a team was really, really special. So uh, in my youth, watching the Montreal Canadiens, and we used to watch them every uh, Wednesday and Saturday, and René Le Cavalier was the broadcaster. Uh, he spoke beautiful French. It was great. But I think that I idolized uh, Jean Bellevue. At least I know I idolized. I got to meet him later on in life. And uh, he was just an unbelievable gentleman as a captain a, just a real to me just a wonderful role model always stood straight you know a, such a beautiful man I thought uh, but the question you ask is a very good one because I didn't want to play forward I mean I you know wing or say didn't I felt that control of the game was from the back line and who was the guy that played with Jean Beliveau that was controlling the game you know so Doug Harvey uh, was very much a defenseman that you know, when I saw him move up the ice and move that puck around and the passing and, you know, it seemed like he took his time, yet the game was fast all around him. But Doug Harvey had a way of bringing the tempo down. He controlled it. And it was, to me, it was amazing as a young kid to watch. And then I started looking and I thought, you know, gee, I love that. But I like J.C. Trombley a lot. For people my age who remember J.C. Trombley, he didn't, he didn't, he had a funny skating style. It wasn't all that big, but he handled that hockey stick. You know, he would poke the, the puck away, always had that tripod, you know, the two legs that stick out in the middle, always had that perfect positioning. And most players who tried to get around him, somehow J.C. Trombley could just reach out and snag the puck away. We've already established that I was pretty physical. I liked that game. I played football at Rito High School and at one time thought that, you know, that's what I want to do. I want to go to U.S. college and play football. I like the aspect of it. So that's where Leo Boyvin came in. And he ended up being my coach my last year junior and literally taught me how to better position myself. But maybe the most important thing for a defenseman in hockey is patience, wait for the right moment to make contact. And that's where my hip check came in. And I think that over the years, you know, I got to be known for the hip check. And so those three defensemen put together was kind of like the dream defenseman, if you could do a little bit of all of that. Sure. Okay. That makes sense. <laughs> um, so then, so 1973 comes along. You are the first pick in the first round. You are the number one pick overall to the New York Islanders who've just finished uh, their first year, uh, they're an expansion team. And as all expansion teams do, they struggled. Uh, they went through two coaches, Bill Torrey's the GM, and he decides we're going to move on from these two coaches and brings in Al Arbor. And so you're the number one pick. Al Arbor comes in and, and Arbor's interesting. I, I want to hear about him. He wins three cups as a player in the early sixties in Chicago and Toronto, and he's tough. He's a shot blocker in an era with no helmets and no face masks. He lays down in front of shots. 
um, which of course he's going to expect from his guys. Um, and then he, and then he's the first or one of the first captains of the St. Louis blues. I, I can't remember if he's the first one. Um, he comes in as your coach. What was it like coming in as the guy, the number one overall pick? You've got this new coach who's tough. Your brother's on the team. Tell me about that, you know, kind of experience coming into New York. Well, you know, it was really, uh, uh, it was fantastic, really. Uh, at the time, it, it, it had been talked about quite a bit. One named Tom Lysiak, who was out in the West. I'd never seen Tom play, but from what I heard, he was an outstanding forward. And the other guy was a guy named Dennis Ververgaard. And uh, Dennis played for the London Knights. And of course, I had played against him. Uh, so, you know, I didn't know. It wasn't until, you know, we got to Montreal that uh, it became evident. And the New York Islanders had also made it quite evident that I was going to be their, their number one pick. And they had the first pick. So uh, it was probably the most important part of my life, thing in my life at that time. Just like, you know. You asked me now, if you were to ask me, what's the most, you know, what was the most important day of your life? You know, now that I'm 68 years old, I would say, you know, it's sort of an unfair question because there are so many high points. And that was my first really, probably the second high point. First game as a junior for the Ottawa 67s was probably the first high point. So uh, it was a great day. My family was there. And there's a lot of stories that go around to it. I'm sure you'll get to them. But it was a very interesting time because the Montreal Canadiens wanted my pick, being French Canadian. Uh, and, you know, Montreal for many years had the right to pick any the first two French Canadians in the draft. You know, so, you know, when you think about Richard Houle and Mark Tardif and, you know, it goes on and on. It was in the early 70s that that was taken away from the Montreal Canadiens because it seemed to be unfair. They did it at the right time because the league did it at the right time because in came Gilbert Perrault, Marcel Dion, you know, all of these guys. So, uh, uh, it, 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 like I said, at that time of my life, uh, being in Montreal and going through the process was was just marvelous. Yeah. And and yeah, you, you, you touched on it. Uh, the word was that uh, Sam Pollock of the Canadians wanted to trade just a basket of, you know, kind of uh, experienced players to the Islanders for you, for the rights to you, basically saying to the Islanders, you can become a, you know, whatever, a 500 team immediately with these, you know, four or five guys, we'll take Denny. Um, but Tori kind of smartly said, no, is that how it was translated to you? Uh, well, Bill Tory told me this story many years later, but that's how the Montreal Canadiens, I believe I might, that might be off. I don't know, but it, it, it's how they got Guy Lafleur. Because I think Lafleur was a very he was a very high pick, maybe number one at the time, but he belonged to the Oakland Seals, and so he would have gone to the Oakland Seals. And at the time, Sam Pollock was able to make a deal. Uh, and again, the accuracy of, of my comment is not—I I don't know—but uh, I will tell you the story goes that you know that's what Sam Pollock did with the Seals. He offered them some seasoned veterans who probably were a combination of NHL, American League. You know how how strong the American league was back in the, uh, back in the sixties and seventies. And uh, so they were able to get the pick and they picked Gila Fleur. So they were trying to do the same thing. And Bill Torrey told me, he said, uh, you know, leading up to the uh, draft day, Sam Pollock uh, took him around the hotel draft was being held. And uh, every time he took him around, Sam Pollock offered him another player off of the Canadian roster 
that had just won the Stanley Cup. And he said, Denny, Denny, he said they were kiddo. Bill always said kiddo. He said, kiddo, Sam offered me, Sam fought, uh, walked me around the building five times. So, you know, we have to assume that there were five players, uh, current NHLers that had been offered to Bill Torrey for my pick. And, and Bill just said, uh, kept saying no. Uh, so in any event, there were a lot of things involved. I mean, you know, there was, you know, there was scouts, uh, Jimmy Devolano, you know, great hockey man started in St. Louis, probably suggested that Al Arbor be the coach of the Islanders, but the scouting staff, absolutely. Uh, and this, I got from Jimmy Devolano many years later, there was just no doubt. I mean, Jimmy Devolano first saw me play as a scout in the NHL when I was 14 years old. So you know, followed me all through that. So anyway, I was thrilled. But there is a little bit of a caveat to all of this. You know that. No, what's that? Follows my brother. Right. <clears throat> so, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. So, of course, in 1972, you know, everybody knows that the World Hockey League came into existence and uh, had taken a lot of players, a lot of veteran players, you know, Davey Keon and guys like that all went over for the yeah. bigger Cheevers, Mahavlich. Oh, yeah. Just on and on. Bobby Hall, of course, a great story there. Um, I had, for some reason, my rights belonged to the Chicago Cougars <clears throat> and a very, very experienced and very good defenseman in the NHL named Pat Stapleton was going to be like the one of the senior players on that hockey team. So they made an offer and my agents were looking at that and, you know, but the prior, this, of course, is June 1973. So we go back a few months to March 1973. Bill Torrey and the Islander staff had pretty much decided they were going to pick me first. So Bill Torrey, of course, was, you know, I think, concerned that there was a pretty good offer and a lot of money involved in going to Chicago Cougars of the World Hockey League. So I always felt... And, you know, at, at Bill Torrey's memorial, when I spoke, uh, the theme I took was in explaining Bill Torrey was that Bill Torrey just seemed to know. He just knew. He knew how close my brother and I were. And we played together junior. We, we lived in the same, uh, you know, basement downstairs for many years growing up. Uh, so he went out and made a trade with the Philadelphia Flyers in March of 1973 and sent uh, Terry Crisp back to Philadelphia for the race to my brother. So Patsy, all of a sudden, March, uh, was a member of the New York Islanders. Well, of course, that locked it. And Bill knew. He knew that we were very close. And there's no way I would have gotten to the World Hockey League. I mean, I basically was going to be an NHL player. It's just the way I grew up. But uh, in that, that's all I watched, you know. But uh, Potsy being there made it very, very easy or a lot easier for me in the transition. And Bill knew about how close we were. So I thought that was a great move by Bill Torrey. So even before the draft, I, you know, whatever Sam Pollock was offering Bill Torrey, he, he was not going to bite. Right. Oh, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah, it shows you, it was kind of like a, uh, uh, a premonition, like, or whatever you want to say of, of like, you know, his shrewdness, you know, for the team that he was about to build. Um, and so, and, and what's fascinating is looking at that first year, I mean, you, you guys are, I think I saw you were like, you didn't make the playoffs, you're 1941 and 18, right? So obviously not winning a lot. Um, 
But already there, Billy Smith, Chico Resch gets a couple of starts. He's not – Jerry Desjardins is the, is the main goalie with Smith, but Resch is there. You, your brother, Lorne Henning, Bobby Nystrom, uh, Jerry Howitt. I mean, it's amazing how – in 1973, you've already got like, you know, seven or eight of the guys who are going to be on that first cup team seven years later. It's amazing how that team started to build so quickly. Well, you know, the first draft pick was Billy Harris, you know, and I played against Billy because he played for the Toronto Marlboros junior and a big guy, great skater. And of course, tremendous player. I mean, I think his rookie year, he scored 28 goals for a team. I believe only won 12 games. Uh, and Billy was very, very good. I think, you know, I like to look back in 1975 and, uh, you know, you see Billy Harris scoring a lot and being part of a power play that I think we were over 30% on the power throughout the whole year. And for as far as I'm concerned, you know, uh, Billy Harris was the forward. You know, we didn't have Trotch, we didn't have Clarkey, we didn't have Boss, any of those guys yet. But Billy Harris was a tremendous find. So, Again, Bill Torrey, you know, got the cream of the crop. And uh, so you're right. The early years of the Islanders, it's amazing. I mean, you think about 1975, when we first made the playoffs, that was my second year, and we had the incredible win against the New York Rangers in the first series. You know, he made a trade to get J.P. Parise and Jude Druin. My goodness, those guys were all on the ice, and J.P., of course, scored you know, the, the famous goal in overtime against the Rangers for us to win the series. And they were not only good players and veterans, they were great guys. You know, the veterans on our team, like, you know, uh, like JP and Jude, and of course our captain, Eddie Westfall, I still today, I call him my captain. I mean, he was one of the great human beings. And of course, you know, winner with the Boston Bruins. So, you know, he had all of that going to him, plus a great personality. And sometimes older players, to be honest, you know, the acquisition of an older player, you think it's going to bring maturity to the dressing room or it's going to bring all these other things and they're going to help boost the younger players. Well, you better know the character looking at older players in their last couple of years in the league, they become very selfish and they're not about to share a lot with a young kid who is about to take their spot. That's just normal. Okay, that's just life. But these guys were the opposite. So we won 75. But Brian Trache practiced with us in 1975. He never played, but he had been drafted. And then in 76, you know, well, before that, just before that, we had Clark Gillies that came up. I got a good short story about Clark Gillies. You know, I kind of built square. You know, I mean, the scale was never my friend. Okay. So after I get drafted, the first year, we have a decent year. We didn't make the playoffs. But I'm leading up to all of the Hall of Famers that were drafted over the next several years. So Bill Torrey says to me, he says, hey, kiddo, boy, you're going to love this kid we drafted. Oh, yeah, he's from Western Canada. And uh, his name's Clark Gillies. You know, Denny, he's got shoulders just like, no, shoulders bigger than you. But his waist is a lot smaller. <laughs> So that was Clark Gillies, a man mountain, who, of course, Hall of Famer. After that, boom, Brian Trotche comes along, this little short guy, you know, with a round face, and he couldn't shoot the puck, as Mike Bossy said. He couldn't break a pane of glass with his shot. That was, uh, that was, that was uh, Trotche. And then came along, you know, then came along Bossy after that. 
And right away, you take a look. That's what five Hall of Famers in a row, boom, and that you're drafting. And then, of course, you know, the, 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 the various ways. I still couldn't believe it how they did, but Bill Torrey knew. And then you got the stories of John Tonelli and Bob Bourne and Bobby Nye and, you know, everybody else you mentioned. Hey, there were 16 of us on all four Stanley Cups. It was a great organization that built well through the draft. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's amazing watching the progression. Like you said, you know, Gilles and then Trottier. And even in between there, even though he didn't come for another three years, Kenny Morrow's drafted in 77. So he's he's going to go off and play at Bowling Green and obviously play for the Olympic team. But he's in the pipeline all of a sudden. Oh, hey, listen, you got to give a lot of credit to Al Arbor. I mean, you talked about Al Arbor being chosen by Bill Torrey. I remember it was on Old Country Road in Long Island, and that's where the Islanders had their uh, had their uh, offices. So when I came into the uh, Islanders after training camp, uh, <clears throat> which we had in Peterborough, Ontario, you know, teams did that in those days. You would have your training camp in Canada and then come back to the city. Um, Al Arbor asked me to come in his office, and he, without saying a lot of words, just saying, hi, Dennis, nice to meet you, and all that stuff. But he says, look, I want to I want to watch. I want to have you watch a video and we're watching a video. And there's a there's a brawl on the ice. And our guys are just getting hammered, you know, and also, you know, part of the video was how unorganized it seemed the team was. And of course, he was showing video of the first year and said, you alluded to two coaches and, you know, not a team with a lot of direction. And, and uh, so in any event, he, he, he kind of quizzed me a little bit. He said, what do you, what do you think about this? And, and I remember, I've always, you know, been accused of being a little cocky, especially in the early years. But for me, it was always sort of a way to live up to my, uh, my cockiness, I guess. And I, I remember saying to Bill, that won't happen. That won't happen again. Uh, I was very confident. Things had all fallen in the right place. I was very anxious to play in the NHL. I was 20. That's a very important part of it. I'm still against the 18-year-old draft. I don't know why they do it. But, you know, uh, we were, we're, you know, we meaning all of us drafted as 20-year-olds were much more mature physically and emotionally than, of course, an 18 So, you know, that, that was kind of the, the beginning of Al Arbor, setting the tone and there's one thing that he said to me personally and I know he said it to almost every other defenseman he said look Dennis you like to carry the puck there's a time for that there's you know space for that but he says always remember if you're in good position defensively you'll be in good position offensively and all you got to do is look at Victor Hedman you know past Norris trophy winner he gets in the offensive zone you don't have to force the offense. You got three forwards who want to do that. You want to be there to manage the offensive zone from the blue line. If something happens, you're still in good position defensively, right? If they break out, you're still, you at least have one man back. And uh, a lot of Al's practices and theories were all about starting. If you're going to win, you're going to have to be good defensively. And look at what the teams have done over the years. You know, we, we, we marvel at how Tampa was able to shut down the opponents. We marvel at the way Colorado ended up allowing five shots in the period by shutting down the neutral zone. We did that back in the 80s, shut down that neutral zone, take away their speed. 
And uh, Al was a wonderful coach and tactician and uh, very humble, very humble. Um, you know, he, he would he would do things like, we got to practice a power play now. You know, I would say, and Trotz and Boss, and we said, all right. So he would he would throw a puck in the corner, and he says, okay, you guys go practice the power play. I'll, I'll work with the other guys. Well, you can imagine the freedom we felt. Wow, nobody's telling me to go here, go there. Nobody's telling Boss how to play the power play. Nobody's to all of a sudden chemistry started happening. You know, you can see where Trot, you know, built like a bull would go in the corner. You can see where Clark Gillies would slide around the other corner. Boss would go from dot to dot on the power play. Stefan Pearson would pinch in. I'd go a little behind him. We were all doing things that were fun and we were creating our own power play. So I think that was one of the big assets that Al Arbor brought as a coach. He was very direct could have been very strict, punished us if we didn't, you know, play the way he wanted us to play, but he allowed us the freedom. And I think that's what creates Hall of Famers and great teams. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah, it just allows instincts to take over. You're not overthinking anything. Just play hockey. Um, yeah, it's, speaking of Al, you, I saw a great quote from you. You said, it's never fun playing for Al when we lost. Our lives changed when we lost. <laughs> there were consequences and nobody wanted to lose. Um, <laughs> they kind of speaks to uh, his mindset. I'll let you create and be instinctive, but don't lose. Well, you know, listen, I'll give you an example. I mean, I, uh, I think we were, uh, we were chartering back then and we had a particularly bad game in Detroit. Um, no, we weren't chartering, of course, not back then. Uh, we were, you know, during the 70s, but we were becoming a good team in the NHL. And, uh, you know, you get on the normal regular flight the next morning, 7.30, 8 o'clock. And, uh, you know, normally uh, you take the bus from the airport to the rink, practice rink, and you hop in your car and you go home. Well, not this time. I think his limit was if you guys lose two in a row, your lives are going to change. And this was not just the early 70s now. This was in 81, 82, 83. It didn't matter if it was October or April. You could, he didn't want to have mediocrity and uh, believed in us, made us believe in him. So when we, we got off the bus at the rink and, you know, guys are jiggling their keys, ready to go to, the, uh, to their cars, Al uh, stands up at the front of the bus and he says, uh, oh, by the way, we're on the ice in 30 minutes. Oh, <laughs> I think you can imagine what that hour and a half on the ice looked like. We, you would pray that at some point a hockey puck would show up. So you didn't, you had this pain of going board to board, end to end, circle around. Oh my goodness. The skating was painful in punishment. You could do that then as a coach. I don't know if they can get away from that now. But in any event, the message came across very clearly. Uh, so if we lost a game, we, we were damn better the next game, no doubt about it. <laughs> yeah. I'm picturing the, uh, the scene from the movie Miracle where Herb Brooks, where the team is basically right. flat against, I don't know, Norway or something like that. And they're just out there with the lights off. <laughs> the arena owner has gone home and he's, you know, again, again, again. <laughs> You know what he may have he may have known Al Arbor at some point, 
but it wasn't unusual for Al. But on the other hand, you know, like giving us the puck in the offensive zone and saying, go and practice your power play. You know, that was what the good side of it was. You know, if you gave it your all and he wanted it in practice, we used to fight in practice. We had fights in practice. You know, guys were competitive. Sure. Al never got in the in between. He let it go. You know, of course, it never went too far. But in any event, uh, he was, for a guy who played on defense, probably never carried the puck over center ice in his whole NHL career, which included three Stanley Cup championships, as you mentioned, he was adept at trying to find the best of the best in each one of his players. He, he would never, he said one time, you know, I, I don't know if it was my second or third year, and uh, it was my third year when I won uh, my first Norris. The power play was such that he didn't want anybody to carry the puck in. There was always a certain play that we could go and put the puck off the corner boards, get the right bounce, have two guys going on it, you know, overloading where the puck was going to be. But when the puck was shot in, guys were going in full speed. But he said, Dennis, you puck in. Wow. So there's no doubt that, you know, think about it. When someone gives you that kind of responsibility and freedom, you're not going to screw up. You're not going to screw up. And, you know, I, I, I had good success and, you know, and good size as well. I played about, you know, 210. To, to 12 for sure most of my career so I was able to make sure that I didn't screw up always remembering that get back to your defensive position after you make the offensive play but zone entry was the most important thing so we have various ways of being able to do it Al was very good very good like that yeah yeah um and you know you, you mentioned that 75 season I think that's f- for for a lot of hockey fans, that's when like your guys, you, you're, you know, the Islanders arrival was announced, right? You beat the Rangers, then you're down three nothings. You beat the Penguins four three. You almost do it again with the Flyers. You're down three nothing, and you, you take them to seven games, but you lose, and then they win the cup. I think that's what everybody thought. Uh, there's something going on on Long Island. Um, what was that playoff run like? I mean, how electric was that? Um, we were in a situation after beating the Rangers. We're a young team, and for us, growing up the last couple of years in New York, Rangers would come in in Long Island, Rod Gilbert would score a goal, and the Coliseum would erupt. You know, hockey fans were Ranger fans, you know, in New York, Long Island for, you know, decades. That made us pretty mad. You know, I remember Bobby Nystrom kind of going crazy about it one time in the dressing room, and it was pretty much, you know, we got to beat him, we got to beat him, you know, that because we wanted to establish, you know, our identity. And, you know, you had the gag line, you know, with Rittel and Gilbert and Hatfield and Brad Park. And, you know, these are all superstar veteran hockey players playing for the Rangers. Uh, but we were, we wanted to make our point. So, uh, you know, that's why, you know, 1975 was, was such a, uh, a game changer, you know, for all of us. And, um, we get into the series against Pittsburgh, and I think we, we we probably figured we'd already won the cup, you know, despite beating the Rangers. I, you know, the psyche was such that we had already accomplished a lot. 
So we're on the ice practicing after having lost the third game in a row against the Pittsburgh Penguins. Al Arbor comes out on the ice. And remember now, this is 1975. We got Eddie Westfall. We got Jude Drew and J.P. Parise. We got some real veteran players there. And, of course, some young bucks like us. Al calls us to center ice at practice, and he apologizes. And we're going like, I mean, I don't have a long career in hockey at that point, a couple of years in the NHL and junior hockey. I never heard a coach apologize. But when I, when it's, it's when J.P. Parise, who was like 35 years old at the time, came around, and in French, he said like a, a swear word. And, you know, in good old J.P. terms, he said, I've been around a long time in this, and I've never, never heard a coach apologize to his players. And that struck me, and still today. Al Arbor said, look, I have been injured. He had, I think, sciatic nerve and uh, <clears throat> had not been able to work with us at practice during the previous couple of weeks. He was always able to coach, but apparently in tremendous pain. He apologized for not doing his homework. Oh, my God. <clears throat> I still feel, you know, the emotions of the team at that time, and especially when JP said what he said. You know, Eddie Westfall is there a lot of guys. So the next game we went out, and, you know, we knew we had nothing to lose, obviously. And then it was game four in Pittsburgh. And what I remember is Captain Eddie Westfall saying, don't give them anything. Don't give them nothing. Don't give them nothing. Or don't give them anything. So we're in Pittsburgh. Not only do we end up winning the game one nothing, but it's Eddie Westfall who scores the goal late in the game. And Chico Rash was in goal, played unbelievable, stopped Pierre LaRouche on a breakaway late in the third period. Things had started to come together. And if you don't have a belief on the bench, you're not going to execute on the ice. And I think that's what happened. Al Arbor gave us, you know, the, the belief that we could do it, and he was counting on us, in a sense. And uh, the apology was probably the greatest speech I've ever heard. Hmm. So what happened? And then we went on, of course, and almost beat the Flyers. So it, it was the same thing. The, the respect that we had as a team, you know, filtered down from Tory to Al, but also from the great veteran players, you know, like Eddie Westfall and JP, down to guys like me. Uh, it was a great opportunity to understand the pro game and understanding what believing in yourself and your teammates means. It was a great time. It was a great time in, in hockey for me personally, you know, great breakthrough. Yeah. And, and, and in that kind of five year run from 75 to 79, before you start winning your cups, you win three Norris trophies, you're right. putting a ton of points. Um, I think you're the only defenseman besides Bobby Orr at that point to have ever scored hundred points in a season. Um, and in those five years, you guys go to the semi, the, the cup semis for those years. So you're knocking on the door um, in 79, what seemed like a bad moment obviously becomes the springboard for a great run in 79 in February, you're playing at the garden um, and you hit Ulf Nilsson. And right. a clean hit, not even close to being a penalty. Uh, he breaks his ankle. Uh, and obviously the Rangers fans are incensed and they start, you know, chanting pot fan sucks and all that. Um, Nilsson quickly comes out and says that, you know, you're a clean player. It was a clean hit. He blames it on the ice at the garden, 
says that, you know, the ice was never good, that it's, uh, you know, they play basketball there and have circuses there. Um, but obviously, as, uh, <laughs> as, as one of my sons said, you, you have been living rent-free in Rangers fans' heads for 40-plus years now, ever since that moment. <laughs> feel that line. That is a great line. <laughs> um, but uh, they, they, that year, beat you guys in the playoffs. They probably think they've, but they go and lose to Montreal. But from then on, that, that's, that's the last series you guys lose for 19 series, that series to, to the Rangers. Tell me a little bit about that. I mean, obviously, you know, what you were thinking when all that was going down and that season and then the springboard to obviously the beginning of the big run. Well, you know, I mean, to start with Ulfie, Ulfie uh, and Anders Hedberg were great, great players. And we knew that uh, the Rangers had gotten on and, you know, signed uh, two players that could make a big difference. Of course, you had Phil Esposito on the team and Brad Park. They had a lot of, you know, they had a very, very good team and possibly, you know, could have won. Um, you know, they ran into a very seasoned Canadians hockey team as well that had been on a run of winning, what, three consecutive Stanley Cups, right? Yep. Um, losing Ulf was big. And I think Ulfi did come back and play some in the finals because the injury was back in February. Um, but it was pretty evident that he wasn't, you know, totally rehabilitated. And, uh, you know, it's hard to play with an injury, especially if it's an ankle injury. And Ulfi is right. And, and, you know, every New Yorker will know that, you know, in the 70s, they used to take the ice out at Madison Square Garden you know, to have your circus, you know, elephants going around and all that. And, you know, it's the greatest arena in all of the world, I think. And uh, everybody, you know, is probably going to agree with that. But it did cause a problem for hockey because taking the ice out and put it back in, you know, that the ice, like anything else, seasons over a good amount of time. You would have to add an inch to the ice if you had, uh, if you had uh, skate skating dancers, you know, like if you had a show, like a Disney show on ice, because with the picks and all that, you have to get the ice a little thicker. Then you shake down to be able to have the kind of ice that's required for hockey. Well, by taking it out and trying to get it frozen quickly enough, it made the ice very brittle. And it was not the first time that play would have been stopped to try and repair, you know, you've, everybody's seen, you know, referees and linesmen on their hands and knees, putting ice, putting a, you know, chips of ice or snow on a, on a bare spot and then putting, and then, and then taking the hockey puck and kind of, you know, softening it up. Well, that was dangerous for both teams. And in this particular case, that's exactly what happened. I mean, I went into Ulf to hit Ulf. Uh, because he left himself in a vulnerable position. He had me beat. I mean, he had the inside-outside move, and he had great speed. He had me beat, but for some reason, he made the decision to pause in the corner. And you see with the video, I was, I was quite a ways away from him. But when he paused, I didn't have to go towards the net, my own net, to protect the corner or the post. I then went at him because... The first thing you want to do with a guy like Ulf, uh, Wayne Gretzky, uh, Matt, any of the great players, you want to try and get them to make a play before they're ready to make the play. Do you understand me? You want to go at them so that they rush 
the play. Then the pass could be off or whatever else. And that's exactly what happened. I went at, oh, but what he did is when he saw me, he did a spin to try and spin away from me. And it ended up being shoulder to shoulder. Everything was fine, except when you look all the way down, his skate was caught in a rut and the, the ankle didn't turn with the rest of the body. Uh, and I think you'll see the aftermath. It's not like it started an all a brawl or a war. It didn't happen that way. And I, and I stayed there with a stick on, on my knees and I kind of looked down and I, I, I couldn't quite figure what, what part of his body was hurting. I didn't know it sh probably should have been a shoulder or something like that, but it wasn't. So anyway, uh, moving on, what happened after that is, you know, we, we, we lost to a team who really played well, the Rangers. So they beat us in 79. But I think what the Potvin sucks thing became, you know, became a chant, not only because of that night, but I then became captain of the Islanders in 1979. And we won the Stanley Cup four years in a row. And every year we had to beat the New York Rangers in one of the series to get to the Stanley Cup. Well, that made it even worse. So now I think the frustration and all that, but whoever started the chant 40 years later, I want to say, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it, there's nothing like it in sports across. I, I was really thinking about it for a long time and there's sports. nothing like it in sports. And, and, and I might have to add a little bit to that. There's nothing like it in sports. That's why I say thank you, because it's all good. You know, um, the, the, the Potvin sucks chant, I hope lives, lives on forever. And I'll tell you why. I, I spent a lot of time in Manhattan. You may have read in the early days. I like to go into New York and, you know, spend time. To me, it was, you know, the one most, the greatest playground in the world and still is probably. Hopefully it gets back to that. But I can say with total honesty, I have met a lot of Ranger fans, whether it be in a restaurant or on the street or at a concert or, you know, whatever it is, whatever it was, even back then and still up until now, never has a Ranger fan been um, disrespectful. Never. Face to face, you know, it usually starts, you're Dennis Pot then? And, you know, and then of course I'm, <laughs> I'm stepping back like, well, if he throws the first punch, you know, I, I got to step back a little bit, but it's never happened. And every Ranger fan I've ever met off the ice, you know, and not like, well, I'm playing in the building, uh, complete respect. And I, and I really appreciate that. And it's always been the same. So we have something going and uh, sincerely, I hope it continues. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I think you just touched on it too. I think it's, I think it's all rooted in respect. So that's, you know, that's how they shake out, which I think is pretty cool. Um, so, so then that year, <clears throat> you just touched on it. Clark Gilles is the captain um, yeah. and, and basically hands the C to you going right. into the 79-80 season. And I'm always curious about the dynamic about that in the locker room. Is that just one of those things where he's like, look, you know, I know I'm a good player. I know I'm a Hall of Fame player, but I feel like you're more of the captain type. Is it, is it that type of conversation? Is it a player vote? How, how did that happen? And then how did that change your game going forward? Okay, well, it, it, uh, I'll tell you exactly how it happened. After the 79 season, you know, we had, we had uh, basically what, won uh, what today is the President's Trophy. You know, we, we had been the best team in the NHL a matter of points. 
And, uh, you know, Clarkie was captain of the team. And, and that was a popular vote in the dressing room. You know, and uh, so nobody disputed it because Clarkie, you know, God rest Clarkie, he, a wonderful guy, a great guy. And I don't know how you, you, um, you view Clark Gillies. He was big, he was strong, he was tough, he could fight. But the courage that he showed, um, you know, throughout his career, you know, protecting the rest of us, you know, allowing the bosses, traches, myself, you know, not having to get involved like I used to in junior because we didn't have a Clark Gillies on our team back in junior hockey. And as we spoke about earlier, um, you know, I was the guy probably. And, and you know, so in any event, uh, Clarkie was a wonderful human being and a great player. And also, I believe at that time, had been a Hall of Famer. Uh, had been a, uh, not a Hall of Famer, but had scored over 38 goals uh, playing with the, the Trache Bossy line. So here's how it came down. We have, you know, what you might consider an exit meeting. So we're all in the dressing room, and uh, I guess Clark had already spoken to management, uh, and he, he stood up and he explained um, that he was honored to have been captain, uh, but that it was just too much stress on him, and uh, that he felt, you know, that maybe in the best interest of the hockey team, it would be better if someone else uh, became captain. And shocker revelation, because everybody loved Clarky. I mean, he's the, he's the man. And it wasn't until next, you know, sometime after that, that I was called in uh, by Bill Torrey and Al Arbor in the room. And that was not a nice feeling. You know, you never like to go see a GM and a coach. And, you know, you're by yourself. And, you know, it's one of those things where you walk in the room and you don't really close the door. You keep it a little bit open. So we it for a quick exit. And uh, they told me two things, which was probably another greatest moment of my, of my career and life. So they said, Dennis, uh, how would you like to be captain of the team? Are you kidding me? Jean Belleville, are you kidding me? Yes, yes, I want to be captain. And then one other thing. Uh, we traded your brother a little while ago, the Cleveland Barons. It looks like uh, Patsy wanted to retire from hockey, but we're going to offer him a contract to bring your brother back. Remember, my brother had been traded, I think it was 78, something like that. Uh, Wayne Merrick, uh, who again was a former teammate of mine in Ottawa, uh, came on the team. And, and Wayne, of course, fantastic, you know, one of our guys in the middle during the couple of years. So I guess Bill knew. And again, it goes back to Bill knew. He knew that I missed my brother. And he knew that he and I were in conversation and I knew my brother wasn't happy, you know, in Cleveland and uh, or half Cleveland, half Minnesota. So that day I learned probably the best two pieces of news, uh, you know, ever at that time. So I became captain of the team, but um, I think I, I made it very clear at the time and still do. I wasn't the only captain. I mean, I had the C, but Clark Gillies was still very much captain. Mike Bossy was very much captain. Brian Trache was very much captain. Bob Nystrom, leadership, very much captain. That's where, that's where we won. Uh, you can't win without five, six, seven leaders in the dressing room who lead in their own way. 
So it became, I think, more than me becoming captain, it became a settled issue. Everybody accepted what Clarkie had to say. Clarkie wanted to move on and play hockey without, you know, the, the, his perceived pressures of being a captain, whereas I relished it. And of course, you know, my guy, Jean Beliveau, uh, I can tell you the vision I had that you don't need to ask. I can bet you can see it. First time I raised that Stanley Cup is a great picture of Le Gros Bill, Jean Beliveau, raising the cup number four on his jersey, skating down the Montreal Forum. That's the vision of a lifetime, and I was actually doing it. Yeah. Oh, that's, so cool. that's how the transition happened. Uh, and it was, um, you know, Clarky, uh, like I said, God rest his soul, uh, I will always say, never really gave up the captaincy. You know, uh, captains talk to teammates, help out teammates when they can. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, including me, would, would go to still go to Clarky that time. A little bit of a lift and the guy had a joke or he had some way, hey, 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 you know, he had a, he had a way of lightening up uh, the conversation. That's so cool. Um, and, and that season is, is fascinating because, you know, like we talked about a few minutes ago, <clears throat> so there's transition at captain five straight years, you've gone to the, to the semifinals, but lost. And then in this particular year, you guys have a tough year. You're hurt for a good chunk of the year and you guys are under a hundred points for the first time in five years. So it's actually kind of a disappointing year, um, but you're in the playoffs and in, right before the trade deadline, uh, Bill Torrey trades Billy Harris and Dave Lewis, two of the like, you know, centerpiece. Yeah, great guys, great players. They've been there from the beginning, trades them for Butch Goring. That's when you know it's a business because it ended up being the final piece of the puzzle that sets you guys up. But it's just got to be brutal in the locker room for, for a bit, right? Well, of course, it was brutal because as you said, both Billy and and Louis were, uh, you know, they were solid players. I told you about Billy Harris and the power play and the way he played. And and uh, Louis came in, uh, you know, six foot three, length, played a great defensive game. Here's a kid that's going to play and play for his team and sacrifice. Could have been the other way around, right? So Louis was a great guy, and and very much both those guys are very much good friends of ours still today. Uh, and um, so. It really started a little bit earlier. Uh, if we go back, and you mentioned I, uh, I missed over 30 that year, really with the only injury I've ever had in pro sports. I mean, it was my thumb. You know, I, I the, the thumb got pulled all the way back here and snapped the ligament. And it was just one of those things that, you know, we made a decision, um, meaning Bill Torrey, Al Arbor, the organization, myself, my family, every, that we were going to go for the surgery. And I could possibly have played with a cast on for the rest of the year, but the long term was better to have surgery. And uh, one of the great doctors in the world, a guy named Charlie Malone, who happened to have just operated on Goose Gossage, remember the pitcher for the same injury was the guy who did the work on my hand and, and my thumb, the right thumb that was injured became the strongest Stronger than the other side, you know what I mean? So anyway, that's the story there. Uh, Bill Torrey made a couple of moves. Uh, 
a guy named Dave Langevin, who was in the uh, Euler organization, all of a sudden appeared at a training camp. I don't know how it happened. Six foot three, 240 pound defenseman, defensive defenseman. Um, we were, remember that first meeting with Al Arbor with the, uh, the, the uh, showing the, uh, the bench brawl when he brought me in the office and he showed me the bench brawl. He knew what he was saying, right? So uh, we then go and get a guy named Gord Lane. Wow. Gordy Lane was playing for the Washington Capitals. I know I was afraid of him because he had those eyes, you know, and he had the big head and he was a tough guy, but he, he good defenseman. So he makes a trade and gets Gordy Lane. That's like in December. And then, of course, you move on. I think the team was in 15th place at Christmas, 1979, of 16 teams. And, you know, I'm watching. I got hurt November 4th, and I didn't come back till March 1st. And who did I find next to me on the ice March 1st? This tall, lanky guy with a dark beard, and his name's Kenny Morrow. He just finished winning the uh, the Olympic gold. Of course, we knew everything, and you couldn't get a word out of Kenny, a real quiet guy. And so, you know, we talked a, a little bit of practice. So March 1st, I came back. Uh, Kenny Morrow was on the ice. Uh, Gord Lane was a part of the defense, as was uh, Dave Langevin. And then, you know, the famous trade for Butch Goring. I mean, we had, we had Trotch as, you know, most valuable player in the league, uh, probably at that time, but we didn't have the depth in the middle. You know, we had, you know, we just didn't have uh, the depth. And uh, I think, um, I can't remember the trade exactly that got Gord Lane, but I think it was Mike Kuzicki, who was, uh, who was a good slick uh, forward, but not with the experience. And when Butch Goring showed up, he brought two things. He brought experience. He'd been around. He'd also been on Stanley Cup, on uh, Calder Cup teams in the American League. And you know who his teammates were? Billy Smith, John Potvin. So there was a, he was familiar. Bill Torrey knew all these things. He just knew. So when Butch Goring came in, right away, one of the things Butch said after playing a couple of games and maybe we weren't at our best, but I remember him standing up very clearly and he stands up and he, and he said, look, I got to say something to you. And Butch never had, you know, his tongue in his pocket. He always, you know, would say whatever he felt, which was usually the right thing. He said, you guys don't know how good you are. A couple of expletives, you know, along the way, but he said, you guys don't know how good you are. I mean, I played in LA. Everybody sees you guys as like the next one, you know, in terms of a team. And I think we kind of woke up. So, Adding those defensemen, adding Butch Goring, bringing back my brother Jean, brought in experience, my Patsy, uh, guys who were great in the dressing room, but really solidified our defense core, you know, with the addition of Morrow and, and Gord Lane. And, and we went in the, you know, the last month of the season, I think we won like 18 of 20 games. It was a whole different hockey team. Yeah. And Bill was quoted as saying, he said, you know, you're going to be successful all the way to the cup. You're going to build a team for the season and you got to build a different kind of team for the playoff. So he shored up the defense on the team and then brought in a, a mature, very successful 10 years in a row scoring 20 plus goals, Bush scoring to back up Brian Trache. And Hey, that, that was it. It rounded it out. Yeah. And tell me if, if I've, if I've got this right, you guys go into the playoffs. So you've, you've you know kind of got this team that's come together now you're playing boston in the second round i think 
And they're a physical team, right? They're Terry O'Reilly and, and Milbury and Wensink and get Stan Jonathan, guys like that. And you guys play a very physical series with them. There's, there's one, you know, O'Reilly's fighting Clark and uh, Jerry Howitt's fighting Cashman. There's like, you know, kind of people peeling off, fighting all over the place. Very physical. You win the series. And then against Philadelphia, who you know is going to be physical in the final there's almost a mindset of don't retaliate. We're going to beat them on the power play. And you score 15 power play goals in five or what, five or six games, six games yeah, out of see. 40. I mean, almost 50% you're whatever, you know, 40%. Um, and you made them pay. And so it was just, it was almost like rope a dope. Like we're going to be really physical. We're going to show you tape of us being really physical and fighting. And then when you want to take a swing at us and draw us into a fight, Philadelphia, we're not going to do it. And we're going yeah. to score power play goals. But uh, it was pretty evident right from the get-go that uh, game one in Philadelphia was huge. Uh, they took the lead. Uh, it was a two. It was a two-one hockey game. I think it was second period. We got a power play. I scored on the power play goal. Uh, then the game goes into overtime. They take another penalty. I think it was Jimmy Watson took a penalty on uh, on uh, John Tonelli uh, holding. We got a power play. And I scored the game-winning goal on the power play. So now, all of a sudden, we've won the first game of the finals in their building. Home ice advantage now becomes ours. It was a huge win for all of us. And, you know, the bottom line was we established what the game plan was. We can score on the power play. And, yes, our team scored 15 power play goals in six games. It's an unbelievable number. And um, that was the way we ended up beating the Flyers. Because remember that year, the Flyers had gone 35 games without a loss. You know, there's no overtime in 1980. So, you know, you would end the game tied at one. Both teams got a point. But, you know, it just sort of solidifies the fact that the Flyers were the best team in the NHL. And I love that playoff format, by the way, because it was a format where the two best teams finally met in the finals. And uh, it was memorable. And from that point on, I remember being asked, can, uh, can you guys, uh, you know, could you guys win another one? And, you know, like old Dennis Potvin, I said, sure. Yeah, we can win several. Of course, you know, it's just like, <laughs> I say it because I want to make myself live up to it. Okay. And it was my own little challenge. So ego is never a bad thing, believe me. So uh, in any event, we went on and, and then it's history just takes over. And uh, But the coaching stayed hard as Al Arbor didn't want complacency. Right. Yeah. And yeah, so then all of a sudden, then the, the streak begins. So you, you, you then knock off the North Stars, you knock off uh, Vancouver. And then, and then, you know, then like the big up and coming young team, all these young guns is Edmonton. And you take care of them in uh, in '83. You sweep them. And I remember there's a there's a great documentary called uh, It's about those young Oilers. I think it's called The Boys on the Bus. Have you seen that? Um, no, I have not. I look for it. Yeah, it's 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 great. And uh, you know, it's 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 partly you know footage from then, you know, from the early '80s. But then it's also as told now. And there's a, a scene with Gretzky where he says they're walking out of. Um, the arena after you've won, after you've beaten them in 83. And they're thinking, oh, you know, we'll be back and all this stuff. And obviously they were, 
but um, they're walking past your locker room and you guys have just won your fourth Stanley cup. Right. And everybody's obviously joyous, but they, they walk by and they see the ice packs and the wraps and the people in hot tubs. And, you know, and they're like, Oh my God, we have work to do. Like, this is it, like, we need to have taken a, have, we need for this to have taken a physical toll for us to get to that next level. And so that's what they took into the next season was walking by your locker room and seeing the price that you guys paid to win that cup. I thought it was a pretty cool moment in the video, in the documentary. Well, you know, it, it, it tells you, first of all, um, I don't think there's any organization in the NHL that will speak more highly of the Islanders than the Oilers. Cause we had also beaten them a couple of years before in the playoffs. I think it was the third time that, we ended up beating them in the playoffs. And then, of course, in 83, it was a totally, you know, unpredictable four-game sweep. And, and by the way, Mike Bossy wasn't able to play the first game in Edmonton. Mm. Uh, you know, that he was, I, I think it was laryngitis. There was a, it wasn't a, an injury. It was something like he was sick for some reason and he didn't play the first game. So, you know, what we did is we went back to, you know, the old Islanders we could shut anybody down. And I, you know, I remember Al talking about, you know, don't wait for them at our blue line, meet them at Santa Rice, you know, and that was kind of the way that, you know, when you see a guy like Mark Messier wind up behind the net or come around the corner, you knew that they were trying to get the puck to him at top speed, but you know, he couldn't really look back for the puck and then look to see where we were because it could have been dangerous, right? And, you know, I was always trying to stand up and Kenny Morrow and all of us did the same thing. So it was a team defense that won that game. And I think then the second game, we, I think it was 6-3, we won the second game. And then, then we had to go back to Long Island. So, you know, it was a different oiler mentality at that point. You could just see it in their eyes. And that was a lot different than the year after in 84. I could see eyes that they were not the same young bucks that had you know didn't have the experience of playing in these kinds of games and that's what made them a champion eventually but uh, uh, I've often heard comments you know from Gretz and Paul Coffey and that you know when they talk about those series uh, it really you know it it really warms my heart to see the respect they had for our organization um, and of course you know, eventually they, they put their own stamp on the NHL and, and as a dynasty, you know, winning, was it five and seven years after that? So uh, that was a very memorable uh, playoff for us, probably the greatest. We played really well, you know, really well as a team. Yeah. Obviously, you're, you're well, you're compared to, you know, a, a number of different players, but Bobby Orr, his career was kind of winding down when you came into the league. I mean, there was, there was certainly overlap for a few years, but he was injured and he went to Chicago, um, you know, all kind of in your first few years. What did you, did you have much of a relationship with him? I mean, you know, he was, you know, you were kind of that next guy who was scoring a lot like he had. Did you have much of a relationship with him? No, um, none. Um, as a matter of fact, not until 1976 when we were teammates for in Canada. Uh, but that's not just Bobby, uh, it's every player. I mean, I played, what, 10, 12 years against Bobby Clark, and I would never have said hello to him. I mean, it got, you know, we never, it was never like that. I mean, I remember going to, uh, I, it could have been, it wasn't Chicago, I think it was Montreal, or one of the All-Star games. Oh, no, it was Buffalo. 
So in any event, I'm, you know, I'm sitting there at the all-star game and I remember Trotch and boss are sitting next to me and we're, you know, we're on the, the Eastern all-star team. And uh, so is, you know, ba uh, uh, Billy Barber, uh, Bobby Clark and Reggie Leach. And then you got the Bruin guys over there, Middleton and, you know, whoever else. And, and they're sitting there. The brothers are sitting there. We're sitting here in the dressing room. Nobody's saying a word to each other, you know. And then the magical thing happens. The puck is dropped. And Bobby Clark made an incredible play. I slide into the slot. He hits me with a pass and I score a goal. And it, it was magical because when you think back on it or even look at it, if you saw the dressing room, you would say, these guys won't play with each other. You know, they hate each other. Well, that's true. We all didn't like each other as hockey players. But once the puck was dropped and everybody with the same jerseys on, we became, you know, these wonderfully competitive people that are, you know, in the NHL. It was a great moment, I remember. But um, with Bobby, it was the same thing. You know, um, I didn't know Phil. I didn't know any of those guys. Uh, I played, you know, with Frank Mahovlich one year uh, in the All-Star game. But you would never have associated with players from the other team. There was no free agency. And players didn't get moved, not the top players anyway. Um, and our team uh, throughout, like just I said earlier, 16 guys, you know, on the four Stanley Cups, there wasn't a lot of movement on our team. It was one guy, you know, would come in, Bobby Lorimer, and Mike McEwen would come in, you know, but there was usually one addition. So, no, uh, but on the subject of Bobby, um, there was never any relationship really until 76 and after that it was that that too was over like everybody else but since then bobby and i have become very good friends uh he's down here in florida as well during the season uh the winter season um but it, you know it, it's just the way it was back in those days you know and um you know the relationships that i have with you know many of the alumni now all developed you know, from being together, maybe, you know, seeing you at the all-star game, but, you know, it was afterwards. Sure. You know, Peter Mahovlich, you'll call or something, you know, we all have things. And Bobby, and Bobby is, uh, I don't know if you ever met him, but he's probably the most generous man you've ever seen. And particularly he'll do things uh, for everybody. And uh, Bobby has been a great, great help. Uh, throughout the couple of years when I, my brother really struggled at the, uh, with his uh, health. And Bobby would come down or come up from Jupiter to visit my brother. And uh, just, you can imagine how that made my brother feel. So that's the kind of guy that he is and, and a, a good friend. Um, so I, I think overall, you know, guys that shared a lot together, meaning winning and losing and being pros, we all come from the same mold and um, you know, Bobby was in my head, uh, you know, since I was 13, the first time I stepped on the ice for the Ottawa 67s, you know, uh, I don't know how I played, but I played. And uh, the next morning there's a big picture in the paper, you know, the next Bobby Orr. Does anybody want that kind of pressure? <laughs> you know? That's pressure. <laughs> or, you know, you're, you're never going to equal, what Bobby was and, and making the game totally different. So people say, well, did Bobby Orr change the game of hockey? So I said, yes. And I'll, as I'm saying to you right now, the guy who won 
the best defenseman in the NHL before Bobby Orr started was a guy named Harry Howell. Oh, was, was it Harry Howell? Okay. I thought it was somebody different. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So Harry Howell, remember, played for the Rangers. Harry yeah. Howell, you know, he was a uh, Al Arbor type defenseman. So when Bobby came in, there's the structure of the game changed for the better. Right. And playing junior hockey, and I find myself, you know, wanting to partake in the offense. Nobody was telling me, no, you can't do that. Well, they're starting to do that in the NHL now, you know. Then Brad Park was there as well. So now all of a sudden, you know, I mean, Brad had to play head to head against Bobby for for years. Probably, probably should have been probably the guy who was the most number two in the Norris decision every one of those years. Brad Park, great player and good friend. Um, but you know, Bobby Orr changed the game, and for me, was in my head from the time I was a, a junior hockey player because of the timing and obviously there hadn't been another player who joined the major junior A at such a young age other than Bobby Orr. Right. Right. Uh, that's, that's a cool story. Um, curious. And, and, and I've taken up a ton of your time, so I, I'll, I'll wrap it up. I'll, I'll just ask this question. I'm, I'm curious, two things. One, was there a goalie? Like every pitcher has a batter. They just, you know, can't get out or vice versa. Was there a goalie who was just, just stoned you every time and drove you crazy. And it might not have been Ken Dryden. Could have been, you know, some guy who, you know, doesn't really rate. Was there like that guy? What a great question. And and rarely asked. Yeah, everybody's got somebody. Okay. And I don't know why, but his name was Dennis Heron. You're going to have to go back and research Dennis Heron. Was he Penguins? He was with the Penguins. Exactly. And um, he just, I don't understand. And, you know, he, I just couldn't get anything by him. And it was year after year. And I don't know how many years he played, but he stuck in my head. I just couldn't score on him. And, you know, I think that he may have ended up with the Boston Bruins. And one of my last games in the NHL, I had, I had 150, I had 1,052 points and I was playing in my 1,055th game or something like that. And I really wanted to get to a point a game in my career. I didn't, but it was that guy again who was in goal. And I, and I must have had 10 shots that game and I still couldn't get anything through him. And uh, Dennis Heron, it's a great question because, you know, it's never asked, but Dennis Heron, to me, was the guy that was in my head. I, I don't know if I ever scored against him. <laughs> oh, that's, that's awesome. That's funny. That probably makes it, if he ever hears that, it probably makes his day. I, I, French-Canadian guy, and, you know, the word gets around. And I never, I've never had another goaltender that I could put in that same category, you know? Oh, oh, so oh no, they're starting Dennis Heron? <laughs> that's awesome. Well, well, Dennis Potvin, I have to say it's been fascinating hearing, you know, the, the whole arc of your career from, you know, from growing up in, in Ottawa and, and, you know, the Ottawa area and, you know, obviously your years with the 67s and the Islanders and, and all that, you know, the anecdotes along the way, just fascinating to listen to. I, I really appreciate you coming on Chasing Hardware. Well, you know what? Yeah. Thank you for the opportunity. It's really fun to uh, talk about these things. And I just thought your line of questioning was outstanding. So I appreciate it. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Well, thank you very much, Dennis.
And thank you for listening to Chasing Hardware. I've been your host, Rich Lumello. The Michael Stanley Band brought us in, and the suburbs with Life is Like are going to take us out. Speak to you next time. Tonight, it feels like life. Come on. Life is like Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.